whenever you're learning, you have pshat, which means the literal interpretation. Resh stands for remez, like hints. Like you ever hear like, you know, uh, Esther mina Torah, Esther, where do we have a source for her in the Torah? It's like a little Haman, the name Haman, where do we see Haman in the Torah? So the, when it speaks about the tree, uh, where the apple and whatever, it wasn't an apple, but that whole thing. So it's Hamino Eitz, that you ate from the tree, Haman, Hamino Eitz, you know. Then there's drush. Drush is what we're going to learn, a drush. And then there's sod, which is Kabbalah, and all the deeper mysteries. So we're going to learn a very interesting little pasuk. Well, everything's interesting. And we're going to learn uh, Rashi. And we're going to ask a really powerful question on Rashi. And then we're going to learn one answer to the Rashi. And then we're going to jump off entirely, okay? Fair deal. So in the week, this week's Parsha, we have a, a moment where we have, Yit, we have Yaakov, who's about to meet Esau. And Yaakov is nervous. He's nervous. Makes sense. He's about to meet his arch enemy, right? Who's out for his blood. It's not a cool thing to walk down a dark alley when you know somebody from the Bloods wants to kill you and he's got his knife with him and his buddies, right? Not a good thing. That's probably how Yaakov felt, that he is going to be having a very big problem with his brother. So let's open to the Pasuk here. It's on Pasuk. This is right in the beginning. Perak Lamed Beis, chapter 32, Pasuk Ches. Pasuk, that's the eighth Pasuk. Okay. We'll read the Pasuk before, actually. And the angels returned El Yaakov Lamor. They went back to Yaakov because Yaakov had sent these messengers, these angels, to find out what's going on you know, on the other side where Yaakov, where, where Esav is. Is he really ready to make war, you know, to fight with us? What's going on? And they said to, to, to Yaakov, these messengers, these, these angels came back and they said, Banu el el Esav, we came to your brother to Esav. And you got to know, he's on his way to meet with you, right? This feels like, you guys are too young, but there used to be a TV show called The OK Corral, you know, like, you know, um, Gun smoke, you remember gun smoke, like you know, we had the you know, in the, in the west, you know, you'd have the 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 um, what were they called? Uh, the guns, the, the, the cowboys? Uh, huh? The cowboys, but the bad cow, you know, they would come out and they would say, We'll meet you at high noon, and they'd have the shootouts, you know, anyway. So they say to him, Not only is he coming, the Arba Meos Ishimo, he's got 400 people with him. Okay? So, next puzzle. This is the puzzle you want to focus on. Bayar Yaakov Ma'od. The translation. And Jacob was very frightened. Bayetzerlo. And it distressed him. Fair thing. Fair thing to be distressed. He's got his enemy. And 
and he's got the enemy's got his 400 people in the posse and they're all after him you'd be a little distressed I'd be very distressed let me just finish the passage so he divided the na- the people that were with him. He divided his family. So he divided the sheep and he divided the animals and the people. He divided it into half. And as we'll learn in the future pasuk, he said, "Listen, if this group of people and these animals get killed." At least we'll have a surviving other, you know, population. By the way, this is one of the reasons. There's no one reason for anything happening, but the Gemara says that one of the reasons that the Jewish people are exiled throughout the world. Why are we all over the place? Go to New Zealand. Go to what's the capital of New Zealand? Christ, Christ, Christ. Christ, what's the capital of New Zealand? Christ. Look it up. There's a name for it. Is the Auckland? Not Auckland. So, okay, whatever it is, there's Jews all over. That's the idea. Huh? Whatever it is, they're all over. They're even in Tehran. Wellington. They're, Wellington, some more fun. But they're, they're all over the place. They're all over. Why? So one interpret one reason the Gemara says is that Jewish people then are able to suck up all the good from every nation and bring it into Judaism. Learn from everybody, everything. Right? Another reason is that when they try to kill us, when the anti-Semites try to kill us, there's always another group of Jews. Now think about it. When Haman was out to kill all the Jews... But the Jews would still be in Jerusalem, because that was under the dominion. That was that was safe for Haven over there. There's always going to be some Jews left. Now that doesn't mean that when we lost six million Jews, that's one third of the Jewish nation. It's a travesty which we never experienced before. But you got to remember, there still were twelve million Jews left. You know what I mean? Again, I'm not belittling. God forbid. God forbid. One human being. One Jewish person's life is worth in a, a universe. So it's not as though I'm saying whatever. But, but the idea, and you see this over here. This was the idea of Yaakov. Yaakov said, we're going to go now. And we're going to divide this nation, uh, my, my, my family, which is the future of the Jewish people. We're going to divide it in half. And this way, if, if one, one is lost, at least we have a future. You have to divide and count. You got, you got to think about the future. You can't only think about the good times. You have to buy life insurance. Rav Moshe has a chuva about that. Is it considered a lack of belief in God to buy life insurance? Life insurance is saying, right, that at the end of the day, something might happen to me. And I'm going to protect my family if that happens. What about bitachon? What about trusting God? Is this allowed to Something do? Eventually, will happen. Establish. Okay, yeah. just at least hear the question. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. So you're hearing it from the perspective of, of course, you need life insurance, but there is the other side where many, 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 many really religious people did not want to buy life insurance because, after all. I could make a million dollars tomorrow. And because I choose to sign up 
whatever, I'm giving, I'm, I'm just making this number, $15,000 for 10 years, right? Or whatever the number, you know, those type of policies. I'm locking away all that money because I don't really believe that God is really going to take care of my wife and my children in the future. So Ramosh has a chuva. He says it's like a business deal. That's how he looks at it. That's a business deal. It's a good business deal. Because even though everybody knows that if they would take their money and invest it properly, they would make more than they would ever make in, in life insurance, but nobody does it. Nobody takes that money and really <laughs> invests it, and that's why. But you got to think about all the downsides and the upsides. I'm sorry, go ahead. What's the question? Very frightened. So that's what I was going to get to. Was his amuna? Well, that's what we're going to learn about right now. That's, that's the focus point. So the first thing is, a person has to, it's okay to be nervous. What's not okay is to be OCD. What's not okay, I'm not being down on people OCD, but it's not okay. The Gemara says that there was a, a person who seemed very edgy. And I forgot which one of the rabbis of the Gemara said that this person is a sinner. And the person responded and said, but it says in the verse, another rabbi responded and says that a verse that says, happy is a person who is constantly fearful of God. What's wrong? I'm, I'm nervous because I'm always afraid of, you know. So the, the Rav said, the, the, he said, being afraid is one thing. Being, having anxiety, that's a whole different story. Okay, so we're talking, there's always, a, being afraid a little bit is always a good thing. You have to be careful. You have to follow, you, you know, you have to follow Derech HaTeva. Why do we have um, cameras on every room in this place? Well, one is in case somebody slips and falls, I don't want to have a lawsuit. But it's also security. Why do I have security? Is security a lack of bitachon? No. It's ishtalus. You have to have whatever society deems as being acceptable concern is considered acceptable as long as it's within the realm of society. It's when you start going crazy. That's when you have to start wondering, Are you? is, is it a lack of faith or not? But if it's within the realm, society says that you should change your tires when they're bald. Right? I hope everybody changes their tires when they become bald. Come in, buddy. Come in. But, so, if, you're, if you change your tires when, you're, when, it's, when they're worn down, that's not a lack of bitachon. Likewise, by changing it is not a lack of, of faith in God either. You have to follow what's considered, you know. I want to focus on something here very interesting. Let's look at Rashi. Look at this Rashi. Okay? We're going to just translate the Rashi. Vayar Vayetzer, which means, and Jacob became very frightened and it distressed him. Again, why was he distressed? Because his brother who hates his guts, wants to kill him, is coming to attack him with 400 thugs. Okay? That's a reason to be nervous. 
So Rashi says, Rajna, so when Rashi quotes a verse, you just be aware, when Rashi quotes a line, there's something that's bothering him. There's something in his brain, otherwise he wouldn't write the words. Okay? So, Vayera, which means that he was frightened. Why was he frightened? Shema Yehorig, he might get killed. Fair reason to be nervous, you know? You want to be there for your great-grandchild's wedding. You want to, now from the opposite angle, you want to be able to learn a lot of Torah and do a lot of mitzvahs. You don't want to end your life in a, in a way which is, like, painful. You don't want <laughs> your wife to be a widow. Okay? So that, that's pretty clear. So you could say, where's his amuna? Okay, but he, he's nervous because, it, first of all, it's human. But also, again, you could think about it, how all the things he wants to accomplish. Okay, but look at the next slide. So first the apostle says that he was frightened. But then there's a second line, and that is that he was distressed. What's that about? And it bothered him that he was distressed. He was worried... Um, let's translate the words one word at a time. We're going to hear, and I'll show you the problem with that, and then we're going to learn a, drush, a, a uh, an explanation to it. Vayetzelo, it bothered him, this singer. Im yehoreg, because maybe he'll kill es acherim, other people. Acherim, others. You understand? Rashi is quoting the Medrash Tankhulam. That when it says that he was frightened, he was frightened because he might have his head shot. He might get killed. And it disturbed him a lot because he might kill others. That sounds not so Jewish. Tell he me was, why. He was stressed that who may kill others. He. Him, him, he's he going he's yeah. getting into a war. Yaakov. Yaakov's going to go into a battle. In the battle, there are basically... When you're in a life and death struggle with somebody, somebody who's coming to battle with you, 400 people are coming to battle with you, and you're by yourself over there. We've all watched enough Hollywood movies. We've all seen (coughs) enough Mortal Kombat. We've all seen enough movies. What happens unless... What was the guy's name? Not not Rambo, the other one, Chris Norris. Chris Norris. Chuck Norris. Unless you're Chuck Norris, there's a good chance that you are going to get killed. Okay? I mean, right? Yeah, so that makes sense. The second part of the second concern is that he said, I'm afraid I might kill others. What's the problem with that? The problem is that there is a straight verse, a straight concept that we have, which is, if somebody comes to attack or to hurt you, you are obligated to get up and to do a, uh, and attack that person first. In other words, the Six-Day War, when Israel made a, um, a surprise attack, was a biblical obligation 
from the Jewish people. They weren't asking any rabbis any questions. When Israel decided to make a preemptive attack in 1967, they did not ask any rabbonim. And at the same time, in 1973, when Golda Meir and the patch, what was his name? Uh, Begum. No, yeah, Moshe Dayan knew that there was going to be an attack by the Arabs. They knew that it was going to happen, but they chose not to make a preempted attack because they thought that politically it would put Israel in a very bad position. They also didn't ask any question. But we have a very, very strong belief that if something is, if, if you're going to be attacked and potentially killed, you, you, you attack first. So what is it that Yaakov is, do you hear the question? Yaakov is concerned that he might kill people. Well, you know, somebody comes to attack you, your obligation is to protect yourself, and if they get killed in the process, so be it. So somebody's going to say here, you're affected by killing somebody, right? Which is true. If you speak to anybody that ever killed anybody in self-defense or in the army, they will tell you that it takes away part of who you are. That is true. But there's an obligation to defend yourself. So therefore, that there should be a pasuk telling us that he was nervous about killing somebody begs at least an explanation of some level. It might be that he was bothered that he would lose some of his sensitivity. That could be. And if you have some other answers, that's also, I'd love to hear it. But what I'm going to show you is a drush which is where you're taking this thought and you're going totally elsewhere, and then when it comes back, it's like, wow, wow, look at that. Okay, anybody have any question or feeling about this? You get the, you get the question, though. Is it purely defensive? What do you mean? I mean, he, he doesn't have to go. I mean, you're Where are you supposed to go? You, you were he, saying before that someone's going to kill you, then you have the right to kill them. Yeah, I would get Does he have to go? Does he have to go back? I guess was, was he commanded to go back? He's putting himself in a situation where he knows someone's going to kill you. You can't put yourself in a situation where he knows someone's going to kill you, then you can kill them. So you're saying, in a way, Israel can give back all the land of Israel, and this way the Arab terrorists won't have anybody to fight. Right? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not being facetious. I'm saying, basically what you're saying is that if you have any way other than fighting since you might end up killing somebody, then maybe that's what you do. So that would make sense in some sense. Stay but at the other way, you stay end stay up stay having... Stay where you are. Well, by staying where you are over here, he's going to... They, they're coming at him. They're coming for him? They're coming. Paul says 400 people are on their way. He knew he was coming. I thought that's because he knew he was coming. Okay, I hear it. Anybody else? I, I hear your point. Uh, by the way, just for the record, just for the record, I want to explain something, because what he's saying, I don't, I, okay, we have at least one Lubavitcher here, at least one, and somebody very affected by Chabad, and maybe more. There was a major disagreement on many things, but on, on the area of occupying and defending the land of Israel between the Lubavitcher Rebbe and Rav Shach. Lubavitcher Rebbe being Lubavitcher Rebbe and Rav Shach being the head of Lithuanian Judaism. There's a third position, which is the position of the 
the rabbis of the Gush Emunim, which is the West Bank people. The West Bank people believe that you don't give up a drop of land, but their primary reason is that it's our land, and every, every centimeter is holy, and you don't give it up at all. That's what they believe, and they have plenty of sources for it. And that's what it's based on, and that's why they live in the West Bank, because they perceive it as being a buffer zone and part of the Holy Land of Israel. You don't give up an inch. But their belief system is based on the holiness of the land exclusively. That's what it's based on. Rav Shach and Lubavitch Rebbe disagreed about giving back land during peace accords, but for a totally different, totally different. And whatever way, I'm going to try not to be biased, although I am biased. The Lubavitcher Rebbe's position was that there is no such thing as land for peace. All it does is gives the terrorist or the aggressor more of an incentive to fight. That's what he felt. He felt by giving up every inch of land, first of all, he felt it was a, a danger for, for any... He, he said clearly that any military authority would say that you don't give up the Sinai or any place when the land is so small that you don't have any... There's no room to give up, A. And the Lubavitch Rebbe is very clear that when you give in, when you're in a classroom and they say, you know, we're not going to sit down until you make recess longer. So the Rebbe's position was, if you give more recess, then you might as well close up the school because, the, 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 you know, the prisoners now are in control of the jail. That was his position. Not, because, not only because it's the holiness of the land, but from a military defense position, he felt not one inch under any circumstances because it causes the enemy to feel as though you're weak. Okay, now you could argue and say that maybe that's because he was from a Russian background. You could, whatever, but that's how he felt. Rav Shach felt that you should, that you're obligated to give back land to, to the Arabs for the purpose of peace. Because if you don't do that, Maybe there could have been peace. Maybe, like you're saying, I just wonder if there's an effect there in some way that over the years, being in the Litvish yeshivas, they might have heard this. No, no, I'm being serious. That, the, that, that if you don't give any land back, then there's never going to be a chance of peace. And everybody, the Lubavitcher Rebbe and the Gushemunim people and Rav Shach would all agree that if giving land back would save Jewish people from dying then you give the land back. Not all of it, but you can make whatever. Just a point, you know what I mean? So these are different approaches. I can't help it, but I come from a Chabad place, and I think history is pretty clear that giving them land just doesn't work. But, but this was a major, major disagreement in the 1980s. Major disagreement between <coughs> these two great sages. So let's go for, but let's look at a different thing altogether. Rabbi, I was gonna suggest. Please. When he says Akhir, could you say that he's fearing a ripple effect almost? Not necessarily the people with him, but the extent, like, if he goes to Esau and he's killed and his camp is killed and whatever, Ooh. 
that will show weakness of ghetto Jews. And if ghetto Jews get killed, then what happens elsewhere? That when, when one Jew is killed, the Gemara actually, the Gemara in Megillah talks about that. I'm tying this, I'm sorry. That what happens in Israel affects the rest of the jury, jury in the world. Because if, if, if there are calamities in Israel, um, then outside in the diaspora, the enemies of Israel like, look at it as a mirror. There's a reason from a spiritual point of view why Arabs in Israel are using knives for attacking. That's what they like doing a little bit. Or that's what they have. It doesn't matter, but that's, what the, that, that's their modus operandi. And yet when you're in the United States and you hear about a knifing attack, very often it's, a, it's an extreme Muslim because there's a relationship. It doesn't just stay in Israel. And that's, we all understand that. The displacement, yeah, with New Orleans, Katrina, could be. I mean, nothing stays by itself. So watch this for a second. I'm going to read you this here. Amru Chacham. I love that noise. I mean, it's unfortunate somebody's ill right now, <laughs> but it's a good ring. Okay. Just hold your head on this, okay? Amru Chachamim. The Chachamim said, Al Nero Caesar, the Caesar Nero. What do we know about Caesar Nero? What do we know about him? By the way, whatever we don't finish today, we're going to do next week. Because i got to go through the Rabbi Meir's story over here. Um, what do we know about Caesar Nero? He's particularly brutal. Uh, he might have been. <laughs> I think that most of the Caesars were not... Little pussycats. You Nero know. Was no Caligula. I don't know. These people are crazy people. Caligula's one of was crazy. But Nero was known to be the most brutal of them. That he was way up there. So the Gemara tells us in Gitin on page 50, that's uh, Lamed is 30, Mem is 40, Nun is 50. On 57, Okay, where it talks about the destruction of the base of Mikdash, it says a crazy story that Nero, the Caesar Nero, was on his way to Jerusalem to destroy Jerusalem. Okay, and I mean, I, I can tell it to you, I'm going to tell it to you outside how he did this, what he did. He, he was doing some form of witchcraft. He gets near Jerusalem and he throws arrows from every direction. Remember this, Gamar? And every direction that he shoots, shoots the arrows ends like, like from the cartoons, remember, like uh, Coyote? Like <laughs> Coyote Rabbit. It was, he's going one way and then he goes the other way. Um, all the arrows are going like, you show, everything he shot west, it went east. North, it went east. Everything's going to the east toward Jerusalem. He then goes and he stops a little kid. Apparently, it was a thing in those days when it was closer to prophecy that you'd stop a little kid. There's something similar today, a little bit, a little bit, which I don't like, but the people do it. And he would say, and he said to this little kid, So, what do you learn in Yeshiva today? And they just stopped the kid, a random kid in the street. So the Gemara says this. And, they, and, and he stops a random kid, Caesar Nero. And the kid says, and he brings a post that says that uh, Esau, which is Rome, will be punished 
for the affliction that it gives to the Jewish people. It's a Pasuk in Navi. And Caesar Nero says, God wants to destroy Jerusalem, and then I'm going to get punished for doing it. And it says that he went and he converted to Judaism. Okay? So the Gemara in Gittin says that the Caesar Nero converted to Judaism. In, in secular history, they say that Caesar Nero fiddled while Rome burned, which meant that he went crazy. Okay? Converting crazy. We understand how people could say it like that. Okay? That's what it says about the Caesar Nero. I'm, I'm just telling you what it says. Now, the Gemara says over there that Nero had an offspring. Okay? And that was Rabbi Meir. Which is an amazing thing. Rabbi Meir is the is Rabbi Meir is the light. Rabbi Meir was one of the people who wrote the Mishnah. Rabbi Meir is unbelievable. We're gonna learn about Rabbi Meir. By the way, Rabbi Meir died in Asia. He had to leave Israel. He died in Asia. And before he died, he left a, a will that they should take his coffin and put the coffin by the beach of the Mediterranean. And it came to Israel. That's why Rabbi Meir is buried in Tiberia. But anyway, Rabbi Meir was a great, was a descendant of Caesar Nero. Okay, got that so far. So Nero, Caesar Nero is from Esau. Okay. And he has a great, great, great grandchild whose name is Rabbi Meir. You got that. Okay. The Gemara calls Rabbi Meir in, there's a section of the Gemara called Horius. The Gemara Horius is a section which talks about the disagreements between Hillel and Shammai. And it's a very fascinating Masechta. It says over there that the rabbis were a little bit upset with Rabbi Meir about something. So they decided to give him a nickname. Now, to give you a little background for a second, Rabbi Meir had a <coughs> red. Okay? He, just like hold your heads for this. Rabbi Meir had a, um, a Rebbe. The Rebbe's name was Acher. Acher's real name was Elisha Ben Abua. Who was this person? So the Gemara tells us that there were four great, 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 great tzaddikim scholars that went into the highest area of Kabbalah. One was Rabbi Akiva. About Rabbi Akiva, it says that he went in with peace and he came out with peace. Then there was a person by the name of Benzoma. And it says that Benzoma lost his mind. Because when you get into too much... Too deep, you can crack. Every term, like people, you know, they, they cracked. It says they saw the key saying a cupboard, right? Or they saw. I don't know what they saw. It says a lot of things over there that he said. And Rabbi Akiva said, "Don't say it's water, but it's whatever." I don't know. I don't. I don't know these things. But Ben Zoma died. Then there's another person. His name was Ben Bagbag. That was they're both called Ben. They, they know the first name is not listed because they both died <coughs> before they got married. So the third is Ben Bagbag. Ben Bagbag died. He had a 
he had a breakdown or whatever in the body. In Hebrew, it's called that he broke the kalim. The kalim are the vessels that the human being has. And he just lost, he went out of his mind and died. Okay? And then the final person is a person, Elisha ben Abua. Elisha ben Abua saw a boy. And the boy's father said to him, go and take, for, go get me that bird on top of the tree so that I could do the commandment of Shiluah Hakan, which is shooing away the mother bird. It's not for now what the mitzvah is all about. Bottom line is that the mitzvah of Shiluah Hakan is a mitzvah that it says in the Torah, if you do it, you have longevity. Honoring your parent is a mitzvah that you have longevity. The kid goes up on the ladder, falls off the ladder, and dies. Elisha ben Abua lost it. And he became anti-religious. Or not, not anti. He becomes totally not religious. This is a person who went into the deepest of the deep, and then he just, he just couldn't handle the Holocaust. Couldn't handle the Holocaust. Okay. But he had a relationship with his student. Rabbi, Rabbi Meir was his student. And it was a strange relationship. The guy's not religious. He knows everything that ever was. And he's learning with his student, Rabbi Meir, on Shabbos. And the Rebbe, who's not religious, is on a horse, which you're not allowed to ride on a horse. And while he's on the horse on Shabbos, he's teaching Rabbi Meir. That would be the equivalent of a, of a Rebbe in the car on Shabbos talking to the student as the student is walking, you know what I mean? Like the, he's, he's driving and with the window open, teaching him, uh, let's say, Mishnayis or something, or Gemara, or teaching him whatever, and the student is walking by him in the car while he's in the car, and when he came to the Tchum, which is the distance that you're allowed to walk on Shabbos, but you're not allowed to go further, Alisha ben Abua, Acher would tell Rabbi Meir, you got to stop now because you're at the Tchum, which is a crazy thing. It's totally crazy that a person, you know, like, so, I mean, the Zohar, not the Zohar, the Baal Shem Tov explains what happened he heard, whatever this means, he heard a heavenly voice, he meaning Elisha ben Abu, heard a heavenly voice that said everybody can repent except for Elisha ben Abu. Now, that's a very heavy thing. To hear a heavenly voice, whatever that means, that then says everybody can do tshuva except for Zakatinsky, that's a very scary thing. That's a, you know, that's a really scary thing. The Baal Shem Tov says that his test was not to listen to the voice because everybody could repent. That was his test, that he shouldn't have listened to it. He did. So he's, his name was Acher, which literally means the other. There's a lot of books about him. He's a very mysterious person in the way that Rabbi Akiva is the positive person who came from nothing and becomes from rags to riches. And Elisha ben Abua was the exact opposite. But his student, Acher, the rabbis called him Acherim. That's what they called him. They called him the other. From the Acher, his Rebbe, they called him Acherim. Now put this together, guys. Now look at this Rashi. He was afraid <coughs> about getting killed. Okay, that we understand. 
Okay. But he was also, Vietzelo Rashi says, but he was also distressed. Shema, right? Why? Imyarog hu esacherim. Because what would happen if he kills Esau? What happens if he kills Esau? There's no Caesar Nero. No Caesar Nero. There's no Acher. I mean, there's no Acherim because there's no Rabbi Meir. He never comes out of it. Now, you might, you might not like that type of learning. That's called Drush. That's where you see... Uh, did you guys get that, what I just did? Yaakov knows Nero. Well, we know that. We know that Moshe did that. We know that before Moshe was going to kill the Egyptian, it says, he looked at the generations of the non-Jewish guy who was killing the Jewish guy, and he saw there were no converts coming out of it. Do you remember that, Rashi? Rashi says that Moshe looked and saw that there was nothing good going to come out of this guy, and that's when he killed him. So over here, taking that same concept, Rashi potentially, this is just a way to learn a certain way of seeing things, Rashi says that Yaakov saw in the spiritual DNA blood of Esau that there's going to be a future. There's going to be something there. And I can't, I don't want, if I kill him, there's going to be cost. There's something good that could come out of Esau. And, and if I do that, <coughs> that's disturbing to me. Anyway, that's um, a way of looking at things. That it's deeper than the way we see things. There's generations and generations and generations. If my grandmother's uncle was not studying communism in the yeshivas in Poland and becoming anti-religious, he would not have been sent to America in 1921 by the Communist Party to communize the bakers of New Haven, Connecticut. That's how we got to New Haven. So he came over in 1921 to communize the bakers of New Haven, and he brought his father, who was religious, but he wanted nothing to do with it, and he brought his uncle, who was anti-religious, and my grandmother, and two sisters to New Haven. The rest of the family was killed in, was killed in Poland by the Nazis in Treblinka, as far as we know. So, does anybody know anything? Do we understand how things happen? We don't. It's a bigger picture. Yaakov saw the bigger picture. He looks at this person, Esau, and there's a lot of bad in Esau. There's a lot of bad in Esau. But there was something good that he saw. And that would bother him if he would destroy him because that good might never come out. That good might never come out. The Communist Party, see, this is why I can't take these things. But let's say the Communist Party. Things can't, I can't say. You understand, I'm put this out there. But the Communist Party, the things that came out indirectly, it itself is evil. But things happen. Zionism, maybe the concepts, some concepts are not good, but it's a bigger picture. We don't know anything. So what I want to do now, well, this is the problem. We could stop now because it is 10 of 11, and that's what we're going to do. But I wanted to go over the fame, all this, the Gemara is about Rabbi, Aki, Rabbi Meir, where there's a famous, you know the line, Elohai the Rabbi Meir Aneinu? You know that? You put the money, Rabbi Meir Balaness. Where did that come from? 
That's a story about how he was dealing with somebody from a from a brothel of prostitution, and how he was gonna. It's a whole. It's a page and a half. It's gorgeous. Yeah, that's what I was gonna do. It's on Daf Yudches in Avodazar. That's what I wanted to do tonight, but I got stuck up in this other area. So I think we got to stop now. Next week we'll do the Rabbi Mayer and how he gets out of the brothel. Because his wife's sister was captured and he wanted to save, well, his wife wanted him, which is crazy. His wife, Rabbi Mayer's, or his 